a lot of time in Genesis, but we are taking a break until next season, kind of like a TV series, and we're going to go to the book of Jude, and we're going to spend about five sermons in Jude. Now, you may be surprised, because Jude is such a big book, how could Pastor Matt only use five sermons to cover the entire book of Jude? Well, I will tell you, we're going to go very slow. Very slow. And then, let's read verse 1. Jude, okay, stop, we're going to talk about Jude. That's the kind of slow I'm talking about. What I want to do is I want to read it in its entirety. I'm not going to do this every time. But this time, we're going to read it in its entirety. So Jude, it's right before the book of Revelation. So many people will skip over to get to the exciting stuff. But I think you're going to see that there's some exciting stuff in this. So, uh, Jude, verse 1, says, Jude, a servant or slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, just a point of note is he likes to use three things um, over and over again. So just recognize he just did that called, loved, and kept. He just did it in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love. And so just notice that as we go. Verse 3, dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once that was once delivered to the saints for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our, of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know these, all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness, for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and served as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. See, once again, three things. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil... In an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare to utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Man, talk about a curse. The people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up with their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of, of, of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, 
the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning what the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers. Oh man, that's, that hits close to home, doesn't it? Living according to their desires, their, mu- their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was practiced by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers, living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly not having the Spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray before we enter into this passage. Father, what a a powerful statement from Jude. Lord, as we reflect on this passage, we uh, have so much to unpack in so little time. So, Father, I pray that you would guide my mouth and my words, that they would be honoring to you and pleasing to you. Lord, I pray for the ears of the people here, that they would listen, they would hear, that they would do more than uh, be hearers of the word, but they would actually be doers of the word, that they would not forget as though they look dimly through a mirror, but that they would have a full understanding of this passage. Father, we pray these things, we beg these things, we long for these things. Uh, Father, I also would like to lift up the churches in this community, those that are preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ today, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Father, I pray that they would contend for the faith. Lord, this world is in agony, and I pray that we would agonize with the gospel. So we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Amen. So this letter is super practical. I I think it's very clear that Jude is a practical letter, but it's, it's so short and it's placed so close to the book of Revelation, our reading plan likes to say it's confusing. Who is this Enoch and what's he talking about prophesying? I don't, the only Enoch I know about is in Genesis and it's very brief, maybe a sentence or two about him. Or what is this? The Michael, the archangel, is, is fighting over the body of Moses? I don't know about you, but I haven't read that in any of my readings. What is this about? We're going to get there. It's a little taste, right? A preview of this book is full of imagery and illustrations from non-biblical sources. So my aim this morning for you is for you to learn to love this book. This little tiny letter by Jude. This book claims the church must contend or agonize for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And the people of faith must resist false teachers and false false ideologies and cling to the truth. Now, 
These two verses describe who Jude is and what kind of people believers are. So Jude, the humble author, shares his message with an audience loved by God. So we are going to begin by examining the author of such a book. So it begins, verse 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Your Bible may say servant, but that's because we in America don't like the word slave. We flinch when we see that word. But in those times, they, they recognize that word doulos as slave. That is a bond servant or an actual slave, either through captivity or voluntarily, because it's, sometimes it's better to be a slave in a house that has food than be uh, somebody in a house that has no food. And so sometimes people would put themselves in slavery for the sake of their well-being. And that's what Jude says here. He is a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So, who is this Jude? Well, I'm going to tell you, James or Jude is the brother of Jesus. And we like to say he's the half-brother of Jesus because he is of Mary and Joseph, not, uh, not like Jesus was without Joseph, Mary and God the Father. And so nobody in this room flinched, so I guess we're all not Catholics. Um, Mary did have children. I hate to break it to you, but in Acts and in multiple passages, we see that Mary had children, Jesus had brothers. And so James is the brother of Jesus. There, he's talking about the James who later became the, the bishop or the head of the Jerusalem church. So Matthew um, 13.55 and Mark 6.3 really emphasizes, we're not going to read it because we don't have the time. Because like I said, we're only doing two verses today and we're pushing it. We're going fast. So pedal to the metal. Recognize the name Jude is a very common Hebrew name. If you were to translate it into the Hebrew, you would say it's Judah or Judas. You ever heard that guy before? So through careful study, we can recognize that this was not an apostle. This Jude is not an apostle. So verse 17 shows us, he says, but, dear, but you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is not an apostle. Otherwise, he could be some of these other characters that we know about. So Jude talks about something that has been predicted by the apostles, not including himself. And really, there's little debate. In the history of the church, there's been very little debate about who this Jude is. And Jude does not use this for his own glory. Instead, he gives himself this humble introduction. Right? If you're, if you're the brother of the Son of God, you may want to mention that in the intro to your letter. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he kind of leaves you to have to figure it out. He says, Jude, the slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. You know, every time I read this, it strikes me. What would it take for your sibling, your brother or your sister to believe that you are the son of God? What would it take? I don't know about you, but my sister definitely knows that I am not a deity, that I am not God, because I was a terrible brother, right? I sinned, I made mistakes. So you have this guy, Jude, who is now convinced, he wasn't convinced before, but now is convinced that Jesus is Lord, Master, and God. 
Would your brother or sister call you Lord or Master? Of course not. So something had to have happened for this man Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, to become convinced that he is the Son of God. Honestly, this is a foundational aspect of our faith. That even his brothers believed he was the Son of God. So every time I read that this, I'm just like, man, he has to be convinced about who Jesus is every single time. Like that takes a lot of belief. Maybe someone coming back from the dead was convincing proof, right? And when he came back from the dead. So Jesus' brothers are converted at the resurrection or through the resurrection, which, of course, adds credibility to the gospel witness. Because if I was to start claiming to be the Messiah, I know my sister would be the first one to stand up and throw rocks, right? She would be the first one to say, absolutely not. But here we have Jude talking about our common salvation. And he says that he is a slave of his brother. Now, I don't know about you, but that sure would kind of rub me the wrong way if I had to call my sister my master. Think about that for a minute. A slave of Jesus Christ. So he must really believe that his brother, Jesus, is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord, and the Master. Now, if you look at this genre, it's very familiar to you. It's a, it's a letter format. Remember how they like to send letters or emails, because we don't do letters anymore, right? Um, our emails, we say, dear so-and-so. Well, in theirs, they say, hey, I'm this guy. Let me tell you so-and-so about such-and-such. Right, And so I think that would be helpful if our emails had that. Right, If our email said, hey, I'm you know, pastor at Sierra Vista Baptist Church. I'm writing you today because we need your help. Right, And that would be a lot more helpful than dear so-and-so. And then you have to read all the way to the end to figure out who it's from. So maybe start emailing me with this information. But we see that this letter is very typical of the time. And if you look at Second Peter and you look at Jude and you put them next to each other, it's almost like one is, is copying the other. So if they submitted a paper to school, their teacher would, would accuse them of plagiarism because they're using the same, some of the same imagery, they're using some of the same language, and they're using some of the same things. But that helps us because we are able to date when this was written, which was around 65 A.D. So if you do the math, and we believe that Jesus died in 30. AD, then 65 AD is only about 30 years after the death of Jesus. So this is an early letter. This is a very helpful letter. And so that's who Jude is. He's a, he's a humble man. He's proclaiming something important that he wants to talk about. In fact, what's interesting is he says, I want to talk to you about this. Unfortunately, we have to talk about this. And he doesn't brag about himself. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a, and a brother of James. That's it. That's the title. That's his full uh, explanation of who he is. And so we can learn a little bit about Jude. He's a, he's a humble man. There's many extra things written about Jude, about his sons. I guess the Roman uh, emperor was, was um, hunting down Christians and, 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 and persecuted him and his family etc., the, the brothers of Jesus. And so just know that there's a lot more that you can learn about Jude. But he was humble, and he wrote this letter in a humble way. 
He didn't call himself an apostle. He didn't give himself any special titles except for one thing, a slave. Wouldn't it be great if we had our president call himself a slave to the people? Wouldn't that change how we viewed the presidency? Wouldn't that change how we viewed Congress if our representatives were slaves to the will of the people? That would change a lot of the pride that we see in Washington and these areas. Or what if our pastor was the chief slave of the congregation? And that my role as your, as your pastor is to serve Jesus Christ by serving you. And that's what I should be doing all week long. Reading the Word, praying, and doing these things that the apostles were called to do in the book of Acts. They were called to read and pray for the people. And that's why, if you're a member here, you are getting prayed for on a very, very regular basis. I, I, hate, I don't want to say daily because sometimes I get distracted, but I would say almost daily you are being prayed for if you are a member at this church. Uh, and not only by me, but the elders also have lists, so they should be reaching out and praying for you as well. And so this recognition is that we as the elder board are your servants. We're not ruling by fiat or through authority, but we have a higher authority than the congregation. The higher authority is Jesus Christ. And so as a pastor, as an elder, my responsibility first and foremost is to my Lord and master. And so if you guys wanted balloons and puppet shows up here, I would have to say no so I can't say yes to everything you want. I have to say no because the word of God is clear. Do not add to the worship of him. So you guys know this. So Jude is very humble and he approaches us from this passage. And I'm, I'm going slower than I should. So verse 1b, that means the second part of verse 1, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, if you have an old King James, the second word there after called would be sanctified or be made holy, just so you know. And we'll talk about that moving forward. So let's look at this loved audience. He says, to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He is writing to the early church. He says these are the called, loved, and kept people of God. So about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the people he is writing to are probably very familiar with ancient Jewish literature, like the first book of Enoch and the Testament of Moses, which is what he's quoting from. And we'll look at that moving forward. But there's two non-biblical books that are more of a myth or a legend that he's using. It's kind of like when I quote a movie or a book when I'm preaching. It's not that that's authoritative or the words of that person has authority. It's just a using it as an illustration, and that's what he does, and we'll see that. So the Holy Spirit has Jude describe the audience. And ultimately, all Christians, all believers, fall into these three categories, or really one category with three um, manifestations. So what's interesting about this, this is also the order of salvation. So Jude uses lightning rod words in order to convey something very, very quickly. He's in a hurry. 
he wants to address the apostasy that is happening in his local churches. And so he says, let me describe who you are as quickly as I can. And he does it by saying, called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and look at each word. The called. The Greek word here is the root word, kaleo, right? It is the root of the word we often translate when we use ekklesia. It's the same, it's the root word of ekklesia, the called out ones. I don't know if anyone has ever explained that, but the, the, the word for church is ekklesia, which means the called out ones, or it's often used as a gathering. And if you remember in the past, I've described this, when a town crier or a herald from the king came to a new village, he would call out the, the authorities or anybody who's in charge or the certain heads of households, and he'd say, gather together at the meeting place, and he would walk to the meeting place crying out, crying out, crying out, come out, come out, come out, come out. And I got a message from the king, I got a message from the king, and then eventually you would come to this meeting place, kind of like what we have here, an assembly, and he would stand there and he would say, this is the decree from the king. He wants such and such. So often, the assembly was the ecclesia, the, the called out ones. So the church is a made up of the called out ones. So Christian, you are like Lazarus. You were dead in a tomb, and God calls you out of that tomb. God says, come out, Lazarus. He calls the dead to life. Would you describe that for yourself as a Christian? Would you say you were dead in your sins before? I think I read that in the Bible somewhere. And we're made alive in Christ. Those who are called is used in several places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1, 24-27 says it this way. And I just want to take some of these passages and spend just a few minutes because Jude found this to be very important to include in an urgent letter. I mean, this is like wartime communication here. He is giving you the, the, the basics really fast, and then he unpacks this deal with false teachers that we'll address later. But if you don't have this foundation, you're going to be taken advantage of. So first off, the calls. A Christian is called. 1 Corinthians 1, 24-27, it says, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 25, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And that makes me feel real good about myself. God called the foolish? Anyways, God's wisdom is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Y'all dumb, right? That's what he said uh, if he was from the South. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Man, I really appreciate Gary's choice of songs when we are we are God's people. We are God's called out ones. We are God's chosen people. So Jude is first telling his believing audience that they are called out ones. So he says, hey church, you're called. You have a mission. You have a, a purpose. He's reminding them that their salvation was a result of God's power 
and wisdom. Now, this word is so loaded with meaning, we can't just zoom past it, right? Like, I, I would love to just go on, but we can't. In fact, I would like to spend a whole sermon just talking about this one subject, because I bet in your mind you're asking other questions. Like, what does that mean to be called? Does that mean some are called and some aren't? Does that mean that the Jews are not God's people? What does that mean about the, the church? Guess what? We don't have time to deal with that this morning. We have to deal with just this part of the text right now. So it means at one point in your life, you received a personal invitation from Jesus Christ. This is according to Romans 1, 6. To be called or summoned, as this word often implies, means that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, has summoned you to surrender and be saved, or we could say to come to life from death. You have an invitation that you responded to. In fact, to fill out this picture even more, the believer in Jesus is chosen according to Ephesians 1.4. Let's read it. For, though, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. So not only are you chosen, but you are chosen to be holy. You are chosen to be set apart. You are chosen in love before him. If you spend the rest of your week just thinking about that one word, I think you would be much richer for it. What does it mean to be called, to be summoned? But that's not all. Because we have a verb. And I, I'm going to tell you, I get real nerdy when it comes to grammar, mainly because I'm really bad at it, but I get excited about it. Because this verb, loved by God, and this verb, the way that you would understand it, if you were a Greek reader, you would know that this is a one-time action with continuing consequences. So at some point, you were loved, and it continued for eternity. Called or chosen and loved is almost always linked over and over again in the New Testament. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. You see that? Love and choice and chosen are together. So when He summons you, it's because He loves you. Or you could take 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13-14. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, what a precious truth these are. That we are, are, not only are we called, summoned, but we are loved. Man, I, w I really wish we could spend the rest of this morning, but I got 10 minutes. So, God's particular love for you and particular summons of you was planned from the beginning. As an old Gaither song sings, For when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Man, doesn't that just preach? I, w I wish we could sing that song next. I don't even know where, where, where you would find that song. I guess we'd have to call Gaither. Call heaven. I don't know if he's in heaven. Sorry, Gaither. But he says, for when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. He had you on his mind on the cross. He did not have some possible you. 
He had you. As we consider the resurrection, Jesus did not purchase potential salvation, but actual salvation. Jesus knew who he was dying for. That's what these texts are saying. They're saying saying that at the beginning he knew you. You have been foreknown. Well, I I love the word foreknown, but I almost would like to take it and, and translate it for loved, right? Because he loved you from the beginning. Let this truth soak in for a minute. No drop of Christ's blood was wasted. It was applied to whosoever believes in him. Whosoever believes in him, this blood is applied directly to. It is not wasted. Does your heart leap for joy that God the Father lavishes his love on you, his called out ones? Man, I'm going to tell you, when I study these things, it just brings me to worship more and more. Like, I just want to get on my knees and, and praise God for his love and his mercy. Meditate on the beautiful passage in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Spend some time thinking about it. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Hear that calling again. For those who he foreknew, or as I like to translate, foreloved, he also predestined, and everybody gets confused, right, this word predestined, and we're not going to unpack it today, but to be conformed to the image of his son. This choosing was for the purpose of making you more like Christ. There, you're not just sitting here having a banquet and studying the word and, and worshiping. No, your, your goal in life is to be like Christ, to love like Christ loved, to be treated like Christ was treated. That's your goal, to be conformed into his image. How are we doing in that? Struggling? So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Paul often refers to this as a mystery hidden for ages until now. Um, Paul says, man, I, I get to stare at this glorious mystery of God because it was hidden from everyone until now. You know, we do not deserve one ounce of his love, yet we have this invitation. You have this invitation today. A movie a few years ago portrayed a a school inviting a young man, a young boy, to come to their special school. But he had a wicked aunt and uncle that were trying to prevent the invitation from getting to him. But letter after letter arrives, poured in from the chimney. Uh, it begins to come in through the windows. It become, The invitations come in through the door flaps. It comes under the door. It comes in every shape and way possible. Finally, the whole house is filled with letters inviting this kid to come to this special school. There's a, a summons that cannot be ignored. And the more the uncle and aunt tried to ignore these letters, the more insistent the letters became. And it was just an overwhelming image of what it means to be summoned. Now you may be sitting here thinking, I hear the gospel call. I have been invited, but I'm going to stubbornly refuse to surrender to the king. I'm just going to keep on fighting it. This gospel call will follow you and chase you down and make you surrender. Why wait? 
Why continue in rebellion? If my child rebelled against me, he would be hunted down, and I would squish that boy until he loved me, right? Because I would bring him into the fold. Surrender now. Enjoy the love of God lavished out on you. Now, as a believer who has already surrendered to his calling, you may likely have one of two thoughts. And you probably have a lot more thoughts because thoughts are, are common. But first, you may be thinking, I never felt a compelling call to come to him. I just did. That indeed is a calling. The fact that you surrendered to him is evidence of this calling. If you have recognized that you are a wicked sinner deserving of hell, that you are in rebellion against the living God, and you have turned from that to the living God, that means that you have been invited. The fact that you surrender to Him at all is evidence of this calling. Second, you may be tending towards pride, puffed up that you are loved and called. I'm a daughter of the King, or I'm a a son of the king. Why would anybody cut me off in traffic or, or do anything harsh to me? I love what Paul says to the Corinthians. God chose what is foolish in the world. You are the first fool that he chose. You are the chief of fools. You are not wise, it says. Not many of you were wise. You're like, well, I'm the one that was wise. No, not many of us were wise. We're, we're dumb. I don't know about you, but if you've ever had to go to a church, it's hard to deal with people because people are weird. It's like a family reunion where Uncle Bob is never invited, but he shows up every time, right? That's what it's like at church. And so we have been chosen for this. We should be the humblest of all people. We should be the ones hitting our face before the throne of God, thankful for his mercy and his grace to us and his love to us. The vast measure of God's love for us is clearly seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. God became man, lived, and died for us. But not only this, I'm not even near done. We have three minutes. All right, moving fast. But if you are called and loved by God the Father, you are kept. This word kept is very, very important. We want to focus in on it. Kept for Jesus or kept by Jesus, depending on how you want to translate that Greek word. It means that God keeps preserves the called ones for Jesus. This word here, um, I prefer translating it as preserved for Jesus or by Jesus. How many of you had grandparents or parents that were into the canning of fruit? Just go ahead and raise your hands. And what would they do with the fruit? They would take it and put it in the can. I don't know the process. I'm going to sound really stupid. And that's okay. We already established that I'm the chief of the, of the unwisest. And, and what happens is they put them in a can for the purpose of giving them to me to eat immediately, right? No, no, no. It's to preserve it for the winter, to preserve it for the fall, to preserve it for a time when they will not be able to get fruit. And so this language here is that you are kept or preserved for or by Jesus. You don't want it to go to waste. This is what is being indicated here. If you are in union with Jesus Christ, if then you are being preserved. You are in the can, being preserved for the last day. The word for loved and kept are in the perfective sense. I know that's kind of complicated, but it means that the action was completed with ongoing results. So you are preserved in the sense that he plucked you and put you in the can 
and now you're being kept in the can until the last day. It's an it's a action of pre preservation has happened, and now you are a strawberry preserve, right? You are now used for sandwiches. No, I'm just kidding. Everybody, I'm getting hungry. That's why we're talking like this. Um, you are preserved. You are kept in this can for the end. It's a perfective meaning. The action is completed with ongoing results. So not only are you loved once, but it is a continuing love. And not only are you kept once, but it's an ongoing keeping. God preserves. God preserves the called out ones. You are kept in His love. Nothing can pluck you from His hand, as other passages talk about. Now I want to just describe very, very briefly what this keeping is and what this keeping is not. It is not a keeping from worldly hardship and pain. You are still going to go through the heat of summer. You are still going to go to the, through the bitterness of winter. You will still experience pain. In fact, Jesus prays for His disciples in John 17.15. He says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word kept is the same. This keeping, this preserving, is preservation from complete corruption or falling away. In fact, this preservation is that of God's power. 1 Peter 1.5 says, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So what Jude is talking about here is that we are called, that we are loved, it's a continuing love, and then we are kept for God, for Jesus Christ. So he reminds his believing audience, he's talking to a people that have apostasy in their midst, that there are some people that are falling away. There are some people who are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said they are, they are dangerous reefs in their love feasts. These are people that are going by Balaam's error. Um, man, that's just such a powerful imagery, but they continue with these false teachers. But man, think about this. Jude wants to write about this. This is what Jude has began to, to pen. We are called. We are loved. We are preserved. We're strawberry preserves. We're kept. Peach preserves. They're delicious. Does anybody can? I'm, I'm open to donations of, of preserves. We are kept. He wants to write about that. That's what he wants to write about. But something prevents it. What could possibly prevent Jude from talking about salvation? Why would he not continue writing this letter about the salvation that they share? Well, we'll find out next week. That's the cliffhanger. But he ends with verse 2. I want to make sure we cover that. By praying for mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied to the audience. Now, this is the common letter formula of the time. They like to use that language. Each word is powerful in meaning and very specific to a Christian audience, and I don't have time to unpack. But first and Second Peter both have grace and peace, but they don't mention love where Jude mentions love, which is important. So as you can see, Jude has much to say about salvation and our hope in Jesus. 
but he finds it necessary to address a deadly issue. And that issue is how do you live and thrive during an apostasy? How do you live and thrive during an apostasy? And the rest of the letter charts out this reality. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I cannot wait to preach the next passage. Verse 3 says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, begging you to contend for the faith, the faith, singular, not plural, that was delivered to the saints once for all. What does that mean? Why do we have to write about that? Man, I'm so excited. I could almost just do it right now. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reality that those who are members of the church that belong to the body of Christ are, are called, loved, and kept, preserved for you. Lord, not preservation of being plucked out of the world, but preservation in the sense that we are held to the last day, to the banquet feast, the, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. So, Father, we pray that you would guide us this week, that you would uh, care for us this week, that we would seek to honor you, that we would live as those who are called, those who are loved, those who are kept for and by Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would have the attitude of Jude, that we would be humble, that we would recognize ourselves to be slaves of the living God, but that our whole life, Everything we choose, everything we decide, every action we take, our, every thought needs to be in submission to the King. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that does not know you today, that they would stop fighting, that they would stop resisting, that they would turn to you today, that their life would begin and they would have joy, joy in abundance. Father, that even when the hardships come, we can still praise your name in the prison cells, that we can praise your name as we are being carted off to the lions, that we can praise your name when we are being martyred as your followers have done for centuries, for millennia. God, we ask these things through Jesus, kept by your spirit and your power. Amen.